The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and get right into this as we talk about the task of Jesus, because we've had a lot of moving parts this morning. Um, So let's pray as we enter into this new time of reflection. God, would you be with us during this season? Uh, We experience in Advent and around the Christmas time some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows of our year. We get to experience, some of us, the joys of family being around loved ones, and we remember times of warmth and times of fellowship and times of joy. But on the other hand, we also experience, some of us, the desperation of loneliness more acutely than any other time. And all of us, it seems, during this time of year are searching. We're asking big questions. Can meaning be found in this world? Can hope be found for our future? Is this the year that life finally turns around for us? Father, I pray that of all things you would help us to know that we're not asking those questions alone, but that you see us, that you hear us, that you love us, and that you want to enter into our story for the first time, at least as we understand it, or for the hundredth and thousandth time as we have been in relationship with you for many years. I pray that this Advent season wouldn't be just a ritual to go through, but it would be memorable, and it would be memorable because we sense that you are stepping into our lives in a new way, in a fresh way, and into the life of this church. And we pray that that would be true. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is every child's most difficult discipline during the Christmas season. It's waiting, right? Waiting. How many days is it, Dad? How many days until Christmas? It's 22. Oh, that feels so long. I can't wait that long. And what are they waiting on? Presents, right? To open presents on Sunday morning. Well, Advent, uh, not, like, not unlike Christmas, is a, is a season of waiting. And none of us, not just our children, none of us like to wait. In our microwave, instant society, almost nothing is as irritating as waiting. But the new year in the Christian calendar begins with a call to patience. It begins with waiting, where we deliberately enter into the story of Israel that waited and waited, and waited. And while they waited through bad kings and through repeated exile, through oppressive regimes, what the story tells us is that they were never, ever alone. They never ceased to be God's beloved children, and His attention was constantly on them. And perhaps like a parent whose joy grows as they approach Christmas 
giddy about the children opening the gifts that they have gotten for them, that they've picked out, God kept saying to them, just wait. Something is coming that you will not imagine, that you won't be able to believe. What we celebrate during Advent is that just as God saw their story, that He sees your story and He sees my story. And because of the enormity of His love, He steps in and He brings His light into the darkness, as Isaiah says, surrounding the one verse that we read. He sends His Son into the world to be it, to be our wonderful counselor. Now, all of us have counselors, of course. We have informal counselors. We have formal counselors. We have counselors that we don't even know about and aren't aware of. We have advice that we seek out. We ask friends. We ask a professional. We ask a pastor, perhaps. And a lot of advice that we don't ask for. And it's forcing its way into our lives and into our heads and into our desires. And some of it's good. Some of it's benign, perhaps. But Some of it's harmful and destructive, and we have to develop discernment regarding the voices that we choose to listen to. Now, I've been to see counselors at various times and stages in my life, real, experienced, thoughtful, professionals, and sometimes I leave these experiences sort of ho-hum. I could have gotten that from a magazine or a book, but sometimes I leave these conversations just astonished at their insight that they were able to pinpoint something in my life and in my story and in how I was processing it that I would have either never been able to understand or see or it would have taken me years to realize that insight. And this is wonderful counsel, but is that all that Jesus is claiming to be? Is that all that Isaiah is pointing to? Unique even transformative insight and counsel into our lives and into our situation. What does it mean when we talk about now, so many years after this prophecy was written, what does it mean when we talk about Jesus as the wonderful counselor? Well, despite what many pastors may tell you and what we want to believe in our Christmas Hallmark card sort of mentality, this text was written And neither the author nor the readers was thinking about Jesus or anything like him. They were thinking of a particular king, likely Hezekiah, who they hoped would come and make things better for the nation of Israel. A season of great light, as Isaiah says, instead of great darkness. The darkness of this imperial exploitation and exile under Assyrian rule. And Hezekiah came, and he was a decent guy and made some impressive reforms. But overall, especially considering these titles that we read attached to his reign and hope, he was certainly a disappointment. And Israel never experienced a king who could be rightfully called mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. Israel just went from one king to the next hoping that maybe this one will be the one that will restore the fortunes of Israel. And this doesn't sound too unlike our routine every few years, right? Where we invest a candidate with exceptional, outrageous, sometimes idolatrous hope that one person 
can right all the wrongs and heal our world and change life as we know it. If my candidate can win, then life will be better. Or on the personal level, right, as we go from achievement to achievement, experience to experience, attachment to attachment, purchase to purchase, relationship to relationship, hoping that this one, this one will surely soothe this empty feeling that I have. This one will be the one that will make life work. And we either miss out on those things, we swing and miss and we don't get them and we're left empty and wanting, or we get the thing and we realize after having it for a few hours that it's not going to provide the salvation that we so desperately want and we're still left longing and waiting, just like Israel was time and time again, investing their hopes in a certain king or a certain solution and then feeling let down. And so we see in this announcement that Isaiah makes the coronation of yet another king who couldn't live up to the inflated hopes that Israel invested in him. And so maybe we should be asking, could any king live up to these titles? Can any king fulfill the deep longings? Whatever that king represents, a literal king, politician, an item that we buy, a relationship. Can any of them live up to our hopes and our expectations and make life work for us? 600 years after this prophecy was written, after this coronation ceremony was designed, the nation now returned to its land, its homeland, are still functionally in exile because they've exchanged the oppressive rule of the Assyrians and then the Persians, now they have the Romans. And it was in this situation that Christmas happened. It was in this situation that Jesus was born with these lingering hopes reverberating and being read semi-regularly in the temple of this wonderful counselor, this Messiah King, who would one day come and liberate them. And so if he is to be the king who is able to fulfill the hopes where all the kings before him have failed, what would that look like? And the early church detached these titles to the reign of Jesus that had come beginning in his birth. And one of those is Wonderful Counselor, which is, whether we like it or not, a very political term. Counselor is an administrator, a government official, It refers to the exercise of government, this capacity to administer, to lead and execute policy. But wonderful as a modifier of that term means that this administrator, this king, will be remarkable, will be marvelous, will be extraordinary, something that no one could have expected will be wonderful. Now, you would think, practically speaking, that if all of these kings had come and gone, and people's hopes had been repeatedly elevated higher and higher, only to have them shattered again and again, the smart money would be on a king who came and said, now let's let's be realistic. Let's not inflate our hopes too much. No one person can meet these expectations that all of you people have. Let's set the bar just a little bit lower. 
But as Jesus connects his coming to these Old Testament hopes, he does the opposite. He doesn't tune down their hopes, but he elevates them. He amplifies them. Not just a counselor, but the counselor. The wonderful, marvelous, extraordinary one. Now, if we know history, you know, of course, that Jesus, he didn't liberate Israel from Rome. Not immediately, at least. He doesn't end their political oppression. He doesn't ascend to a throne of earthly power and begin to dictate policy that is more liberating for his people. He doesn't raise up an army and begin to rule in the way that we would assume a good king and a powerful king would. So how was he wonderful? Well, just three reflections as we kind of wrap up this particular sermon. First of all, extraordinary wisdom, that he astonishes people with extraordinary wisdom, with his capacity to see and to act and to teach beyond the conventional assumptions about what is possible and what is not. As we read in the gospel passage, the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And in the story, when he separated from his parents, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And this is, did you notice, when he was a boy, probably around the age of 12, these teachers were amazed at his understanding and his teaching. You see, he wasn't beholden to the things that the way that things have always been. But he sees through the conventional power arrangements, the conventional assumptions, and exposes fraudulent power structures. And this gets to the second thing about how he's a wonderful counselor and that he subverts hierarchical self-killed. In some way, you see, a king... And this is true around our world, even up until the last century, and in many places still, the king is meant to be representative of the status quo. His position maintains social order by maintaining social hierarchy. And so the king and the knights and the nobles and the religious elite, they do their thing, and the peasants and the little people do their thing. And this is how society is meant to keep functioning, how society works well. Well, Jesus comes and obliterates these expectations and the oppressive realities that they create. He tells parables like the Good Samaritan, where hated minorities are the hero. He tells stories like the prodigal son, where we get to see that the the avenue to grace, to God's grace, isn't our goodness, it isn't our morality, it isn't our social standing, but it's actually the opposite. It's our lostness. It's our leastness. And his cross, it contradicts conventional wisdom of the world. Because here's how the world works. Enemies, you kill them. Violence, it's an acceptable, even admired means of protecting your status. Power, it's fine to use it and use it for your own good. Sinners, punish them. Foreigners, ignore them. Send them home. 
Their poverty is not my fault. Jesus tells stories. He teaches. He makes his home among sinners and outcasts to reimagine for us what it means to be human and on whose favor does God rest or whose favor does God's favor rest upon. Boy, I really screwed up that one, didn't I? On whom does God's favor rest? And this is what we pray for each and every Sunday when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as, on earth as it is in heaven. The way that things are supposed to work, we are supposed to work for in our daily lives. Enemies, love them. Violence, renounce it. Power, we give it up for others. Sinners, forgive them. Foreigners, protect and embrace them. This is an Advent way of life. And the Lord's Prayer is actually an Advent prayer. Jesus comes as the wonderful counselor. He has, he has exceptional wisdom. He subverts human hierarchy. And maybe thirdly, or maybe thirdly and most importantly, he mediates the very presence of God in human form. Now, this wasn't an entirely new idea. The coronation liturgy that we read ascribed a type of divinity to the coming king, a mighty God. That was the title they wanted to attach to this earthly king. But with Jesus, we read in the Gospel of Mark, he walks into the temple on the Sabbath day, and he taught, and everyone was astounded because he taught not as the scribes, but as one having authority. Something different, something extraordinary, something wonderful. He is opening up the Scripture, and those types of modifiers are now appropriate. He walks into sacred space on sacred time, and he speaks with a new authority that's astounding to everyone. Because he is speaking the Word of God as God. And this opens up the world to new, new possibilities that we would have never imagined before. And this is why Luke records Jesus telling John, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them and preached to them. The impossible becomes possible because of this wonderful counselor. The king saw people who weren't seen by polite, by respectable society. And this king didn't make his home in a palace, but he made his home in the streets, telling the wrong people that God's favor rested upon them. And this wasn't good news to everyone. It wasn't good news to the elites. It wasn't good news to those whose well-being depended upon the endurance of these power structures that they themselves set up. It wasn't good news to the world's rulers because it put them on notice that their reign is temporary and that their reign is ending. 
And we learn that they strike out at this extraordinary, wonderful counselor seeking to kill him. And the great plot twist of Christianity is that they let, or he lets them. This king was born in a stable to die on a cross. And he goes to the cross and he says this death, his death, is for outsiders and outcasts everywhere and for all time. He opens up your world to the impossible, that despite your sin, despite your guilt, despite your shame, despite your brokenness, that God's favor rests upon you. There are so many voices, aren't there, vying for our attention, vying for, in fact, our allegiance. Billions and billions of dollars of research and marketing are spent to get into our heads and to shape our imagination and to change our desires, to redirect them towards their product or their story or their politician. They want not just our attention, but they want our allegiance to keep the world running as it is, they want us to keep, keep us clicking and buying more and giving more, not just of our money, but of our soul. And then a sea of information and misinformation and fake news and screens that are vying for our attention, we need to know where our counsel is coming from. And we need to know and have a means to discern whether this counsel is wonderful, whether it's extraordinary, or whether it feeds the desires of our ego. Why does Jesus' counsel challenge everyone? Why does it seem foolish? It's because all of us, not just ancient Israel, not just ancient Rome, not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but All of us are so easily enticed. We're so easily bought. If something can give us that feeling of self-righteousness that comes by having enemies, you know what I'm talking about. When you think of that enemy and you set yourself above them, that slight euphoria that comes, knowing that you are the better person, we are so easily enticed by that. We are so easily enticed by that instant gratification that comes when we preserve our security, our standing, even if it requires forms of violence, no matter how acceptable they may may be. That euphoric feeling that we get when we use power to control and to diminish others and to set ourselves above them, or maybe when we avoid that terrible feeling that we get when we intentionally choose to starve our narcissism and our comfort-seeking by extending forgiveness, by intentionally caring for the foreigner that is someone who is different from us and isn't qualified in the way that we are. We're so easily enticed. We're so easily bought by these things. We listen to this counsel without any discernment. But Jesus' incarnation, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, calls that conventional wisdom into question. And it says that it's often wrong. 
And it's often destructive and harmful. And the true wisdom actually sometimes feels like foolishness. Because in the present way of the world, it often is. Forgiveness can be foolish. Loving our enemies can lose us standing. It can lose us a position in our company because we don't exert ourselves. We don't assert ourselves at all cost. But we take a back seat, and that is foolish, at least in terms of the marketplace. But his resurrection tells us, you see, that the marketplace and its values and worldly rule is all fading away. It's all diminishing. And to live by its wisdom is to live on borrowed time and borrowed capital. And it's to use currency that is in radical freefall. And the Advent season is the time that we ask God to remind us of that, to help us to see through advertisement, to see through politicians' promises, to see through all of the things that we normally chase throughout the year, and to be still, and to pause, and to reflect. We ask God to remind us that this world is fading and that we, in fact, await a new one. That all of our kings, real and metaphorical, have all failed us. They've all been inadequate. And we need a new one. And we choose to anticipate a new one. This season, you get to choose your counselor. And I encourage you to choose well. Whether you're exploring Christianity this morning or whether Advent is a a yearly celebration for you, choose your counselor wisely and choose the wonderful counselor, the king whose extravagant love for you leads him to subordinate his own comfort, that leads him from Christmas all the way to a cross for you. Let's imagine that for our own lives and for the life of our church. And let's lean into that this Advent season. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, would you make us Advent people? Would you make us patient people? People who are filled with hope. People who live in a countercultural way, not willing to go simply by the dictates of the world or live by its passions, but that we choose to direct our passions to you and ask you to do that for us that we ask you to change and reshape our imagination so that what compels us this week and every week coming is dreams about what your kingdom could be and how it could take shape not only in the future, but how it could take shape in our lives this week, this year, this Christmas season. Father, I pray that we would do that as a community, that we would do that as individuals. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.